Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let he who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. You ever wondered what is the Christian life about? You could probably fill a pretty good list I mean, if we wanted to sit down and start writing. A good list with replies to that question. And perhaps as soon as I said, what's the Christian life about? Maybe you started to mentally construct a list. And if you did, or if you didn't, maybe you are now, what made, the, what made an appearance? Was it things that you do to demonstrate that you're a Christian? Did you start making a checklist of sorts? Go to church, read your Bible, pray, hopefully at least once a day, watch my language, be kind to others, be a good co-worker, don't watch bad things, take care of my family, do good, be better, etc. I mean, is that kind of maybe a summary of the list? None of those things are bad. Indeed, there's a lot of wisdom in, in them. In fact, some are commanded by Scripture. But simply stated, what is the Christian life about? It's about confessing Christ and following Him. That's what the Christian life is about. Stated even more concisely, it's about loving Jesus. And how is your love for Him revealed? Through your regular confession of Him as Lord and Savior, and through your faithful following. When we consider Matthew 16, 13 through 28, this is what we see. What did Peter do? He confessed Jesus. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a confession. And Jesus says, blessed are you. You didn't figure this out yourself. My Father revealed it to you. So we, we see that confession, and then we see Jesus' instruction here in 24 through 28 about the path of a disciple. Jesus' response in between these two things was to rebuke Peter because Peter had set his mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. And following that, that's when he gives us this instruction to his disciples and to us regarding the life and the reward because he mentions the reward that's part of the life 
of those who follow them, of who follow him. In Jesus' teaching, it becomes clear that he had no interest in avoiding the cross. And that's, that's what brought that stiff rebuke to Peter. He had no interest in avoiding the cross. And his counsel to those who would come after him was of the same conviction to not avoid their cross, the cross. The reality for any who would desire to come after Jesus is that to follow Christ is to live in the shadow of the cross. What we have to recognize and be reminded of throughout this life and its trials is that the life lived in the shadow of the cross is a life of hope, of heavenly provision, and a promise that is fulfilled, that is being fulfilled, and that will be fulfilled. We're awaiting that overflowing fulfillment that will come. That's the path that he calls those who will follow him down. That's the path that's in the shadow of the cross. A path outside of that shadow will not lead to that glorious destination. And so as he's begun to show them what must happen to him, and he's spoken to Peter as Peter showed resistance, then he begins to teach them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the path in the life of a disciple. Notice he says, if, if anyone would come after me. Jesus recognizes that there are many who will not come after him. He has witnessed it already in his earthly ministry, and he'll see it again. By this point in Matthew, if we keep the Gospels before us, John 6 has already taken place. Because after he fed the 5,000, he gives this teaching that some call the church shrinkage seminar because the overwhelming result of it is that it seems like everybody left except for the 12. And then Jesus turns to them and says, hey, do you want to leave too? And that's when Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. So Jesus is seeing that you know, if anyone would come after him, he's seen many walk away. Maybe what comes to mind is, in, in your mind, is maybe the story of the rich young ruler who would come. And Jesus says, go, sell everything you have, come follow me. His response was not to follow. Regardless of the potential response of those who might consider following him, Jesus doesn't hide anything about what following him requires. He gives it very clearly. He does here what he would later confess before the high priest when he was on trial before Caiaphas. In John 18, 20, he tells him that he had spoken openly to the world that he'd said nothing in secret. So we see that reality here. If anyone would come after me, what must he do? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if you're in any wonder of that, everybody in that day and age knew where a cross led. If you were carrying a cross, there was no wondering about what your destination was. It was clear. That's what Jesus calls us to. That's what Jesus called them to, and he calls us to. He hides nothing about the cost of discipleship. I hope that can be said about us. It's not that we make it all a downer, but we, we're just honest about it. Here's what it requires. So that if you would come after Jesus, listen to his words here. 
When he bids you to come, he bids you to come and die. What will die, though, is only that which you can and must do without. He will not kill you, though you will pass through death. Unless you're alive at his return. I know that's a proviso we need to put in there. He will deliver you because he's come to give life and give it abundantly. He gives three commands. And yes, they're commands. They're in the imperative, which is the command voice. They're all in the present tense, which means that they are to be heeded continually. So when you look at that list that he makes, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a list. And none of it's optional. Well, deny himself, what does that mean? Well, simply stated, it means lay down your drive for power. Lay down your drive for possession. Lay down your desire for favor of mankind. Is it because power is evil? No. But if it becomes the primary thing, the most important thing, the number one thing, it's become what? An idol that will lead you away. We can say the same thing about possessions. We can say the same thing about the favor of mankind. None of those are bad things, though those are things that God very well could give, but our hope and our faith is never fixed upon them. They would be used for his glory and for the good of his people. To take up his cross. We're really good at this one, aren't we? Whose cross are you supposed to take up? Yours. Not whose. Anyone else's. Which would also include, gosh, it seems like their cross is lighter. I'd really like to have their... No, you wouldn't. Take up your cross. Now, part of what you are called to is, yes, to walk along with many. And guess what the unifying factor, unifying trait is of all of them? They're all bearing what? Their own crosses. And we can be encouraged, and they say, it doesn't sound well, no, but there's going to be some joyful times along the way. Scripture tells us for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Part of that means that while he walked that path with that crossbeam upon him, that what was also in it, not just the suffering, there was joy that was attached to that. Was part of that joy the fact that there was going to be a man who was unknown to that point that got brought in to help him to carry that crossbeam? Then later on, there'd be a list at the end of Romans that it seems that part of the joy that was before him, that as he was brought into that part of carrying his cross, would result in life that blossomed among his wife, his children perhaps further down. Carry your cross. And we know that Jesus brings others in, yes, to help us with that. And we rejoice in that because he hasn't left us to do it alone. He has done it for us and he will place us alongside others who can come into that with us. So we take up, we take up your cross and 
follow who? I'm going to say me, but I hope you know that's not me, but Christ. To follow anyone or anything else is by definition to not what? To not follow him. No matter how well-meaning your godly Christian relatives might be. They were put there for a reason, but they weren't put there for you to follow. They were put there to raise you up in the fear and the admonition and the instruction of the Lord and to point to the one that all must follow. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. We like to figure out what you should deny, how you should carry your cross, and then when you do that according to my standard, then, then I'll let you know, yep, you're following him. That's not how it works. But aren't we prone to that? I mean, if you identify, not necessarily even all of it, but if you identify part of it in there, take the time to repent. In Christ, you know the joy of repentance and of restoration of forgiveness. But as, as, as he calls us to that, it's all or nothing. If you won't deny yourself, you will not what? I ain't taking up no cross because I know where it leads. And he's the one that called me to follow him, and it requires that, so no. So if you, deny your, if you won't deny yourself, I mean, two and three ain't going to come at all. But maybe you decide you do want to deny yourself. Well, who's, for whose sake are you denying yourself? For the sake of Christ? Or is it for the sake of, I think this will ingratiate me to him, her, or the other, whoever it might be. But say I get to that, I am going to deny myself, but then the cross, that cross is heavy. That cross is scratchy. That cross involves, well, ouch. Yeah. And it's part and parcel of this life. Amen. And follow me. What Jesus asks us to do is to do as he did, right? Now, how many of you have had a good teacher? Now, he is the best of teachers, but a good teacher consistently will probably at some point say something akin to this. I'm not asking you or calling you to do something that I myself haven't done or wouldn't do. That's what Jesus calls you to here. Think about where he came from. If nothing else, go look in Philippians 2 and read the canonic hymn. It runs from Philippians 2, 7 through 11. It talks about how Christ emptied himself, that he came to earth, he carried the cross. That's the spirit that's supposed to envelop us, shape us, guide us, call us. So Jesus gives these three commands, and then he says, For, because, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the thing. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the evil one, you know what they will do? They will put forward a seemingly endless array of things that would promise to save your life. 
to make you more comfortable, to make you more liked, to make you more powerful, to make you any number of things. That's where my life is found. Avoiding the cross was the most recent one that was put forward to Jesus. Avoiding the cross is the one that will perpetually be put in front of those who are in Christ. The thing is, wherever you would find your life apart from Christ, you lose your life. You would find it anywhere else. The only result, the only end is death. The last time that Jesus said this was in Matthew 10, 39. The context there is interesting because the last time he said it, it was in the context of loving father, mother, son, or daughter more than him. And if you did, you were therefore not worthy of him. Was he saying that you should hate your mama? No. But your love for him, if you were limited to two things, love for Christ, love for your mom or your dad or whoever it is that you put in there, if you love them more, you're not worthy of him. He should be first. If you think of who's first in your life and anyone other than Christ comes up, the Holy Spirit might be nudging you right now. Hey, you didn't mean to, you didn't intend to, but you've strayed a little bit and you've made them number one. Return. Repent. Because there's only one number one. And here's the other thing. If you've done that, you've been so unkind to that person because what you have called them to is something they can not do and something that they are not. Both times, there in Matthew 10.39 and here, with this path of the disciple, he attaches finding life in taking up your cross and following him. The sense of will find it is to acquire it. And if you have to acquire it, that means that it wasn't what? It wasn't really yours in the first place. If you want to find life, this is the path you have to take because you will find it. You will acquire it. Jim Elliott's famous journal entry probably gives us the commentary and the teaching we need. Probably the most famous journal entry of Jim Elliott who went down to the Alka Indians. He wrote in his journal prior to that, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And if you're familiar with the story, his call was to go to a previously unreached tribe. And in his and his companions' efforts, they would die with seemingly nothing to show. But following their deaths, some of their widows and others continued to go. And fruit continues to be born to this day. How hard would that be? I can't imagine. And yet, Jim Elliot expressed it so perfectly. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain, that which he cannot lose. That if you follow him, you will find your life. Now, not all are called to travel to faraway places. Or to unreached people. Sometimes we go right to that. Well, no, that's where are you called to go? Where he's put you. And he will lead you to where it is that he, he wants for you, where he has for you. That was his call. What is yours? What is your call? Some are called to depart from previous careers and to become shepherds. 
Some are called to live and work and serve faithfully for a lifetime in one place. That's not exhaustive. There's so many other ones that we could include as well. There are many more examples. As many as there are lives of his people. But all who would find their life are called to lose it for Jesus' sake and all for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And if, 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 if you have done this, and if you're thinking of doing this because you haven't, we have to remember that once we confess Christ, once we deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Him, we will meet increased resistance to every part of it. Every part of that. For in making that good confession and resolving to follow in His path, we declare ourselves enemies of who? Of the evil one and all who are His. Enemies that simultaneously love our enemies. This ain't no easy path that he called down. It's a good path. Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? They're rhetorical questions of a sort. But if we stop for a second and we pause... Jesus' assessment was that it is nothing but loss. When Jesus, he's already, he's already answered this question, hasn't he? He's already answered it in the Gospel of Matthew. Because if we go back to Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, what was it that Satan offered? In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, it's the final of the three temptations. The devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. What does he promise? What is he saying he will give to him? The world. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. There was nobody around. Nobody will see. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus had endured this temptation from the devil himself, and he sent him packing. He did so with the word of God. If you would know the mind of God, you must know the word of God. Jesus responds to Satan with that word of God, rightly cited. You shall have no other gods. You will worship only God. Here's the thing. The world was and is what Satan deceitfully offers. It's not a genuine offer. He deceives. It'll look enticing. I mean, it can take a all sorts of different shapes and forms. It'll look good. He put the whole world and its kingdoms before Christ. That should catch your attention, should tell us something about what Satan's estimate of the Son of God was. He knew that some little trinket, 
some little bauble, some little brief experience wouldn't be enough. He had to go big. I'll give all of this to you. It was no small thing that would work. He sought to pull out all the stops. Oh, if only we were that difficult, right? He would tell Peter, Satan's demanded to have you and he'll sift you like wheat. I mean, he's basically telling Peter, it's, an, it's anachronistic, I understand, but he's basically telling Peter, hey, you're tiddlywinks. You're not hard for him, but you'll stand because I prayed for you. But here's the thing about that world that Satan offered. Satan offered the world to Jesus, but who did the world already belong to? It already belonged to him. What he had come to do, he'd come to redeem it and to make it new, to restore it. The only thing, and we have to get this in our heads and we have to hold it, not just in our heads but in our hearts, because when Satan will come or the world will come or your heart will want to get you to think that this is it, but the only thing that they can give, the only thing you can gain by your own effort is the world as it is. And certainly neither your soul nor the world as it will be. What a humbling reality it is for us that Jesus, for all of eternity, Jesus, for all of eternity, has cared more about our souls than we do even on our best days. He's redeemed it. If you are in Christ, He's redeemed it. He is redeeming it. And He will redeem it. Because your soul was not created merely to enjoy the world for a few days, but to obtain at length its immortality in heaven. That's what He made it for. And that's what He came to save it for. As you confess Christ and follow in His path, He has renewed you. And He's brought you into that glorious work, that work that He came to do and that He's brought you into in Him. For you follow that path into whatever part of the world He sees fit and you find those souls that will hear His voice. Follow that path because your soul's been renewed that what? Other souls would be renewed because of what He has done. So go, next door, other side of the world, anywhere in between, as you're following him. So he continues. He talks about this, this life. And it brings up the question of whose life is it? Who gave you life? Whether you, whether you have trusted in Christ or not, who has given you life? Who has given every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, is living, or will live? Who has given them life? God. So by definition, whose life is it? It's His. God can say in perfectly good conscience, not that he would have anything but good conscience, what do you have that you haven't received? Everything that you have has come ultimately from me. 
And here's the thing. If you claim that you are the captain of your ship, what carelessness and brutal stupidity, pardon me, this is. Because you're so strongly attached to the world and so much occupied with its affairs that you don't consider why you were born. Why was man created? For the glory of God. God gave you an immortal soul so that when the course of earthly life was finished, you might live eternally in heaven. To say I'm the captain of my own ship is to continue in that vein of I reject you. You're not the leader. You're not the captain. You're not the one who's in charge. It's to what? It's to not deny oneself. It's to, I'm going to take control. It's not to take up your cross. It's to deny any cross. And it's not to follow Christ. It's to follow yourself, the world, the devil, the idol. And here's the thing, whatever you follow, you'll share its end. And the, the only one who's ever walked in this world and had an end that even seems remotely appealing to me, it's massively appealing to me, by the way, I hope it is to you as well, the only one is Christ. Because he's the only one who's gone to the grave and didn't what? He didn't stay. He rose again. And then he didn't just remain on earth. He did what? He ascended into heaven, which means that God what? Received him. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And he told him that where I go, there, that's where you're going to go. That you'll be one with me just as I and my father are one. There ain't no other ending. There ain't no other. There ain't, there's no. There's no final destination that anyone else can offer that compares to that. If you surrender your captaincy to Him, you surrender to the only one who can guard, who can provide for, who can preserve, and who can guide your life into the harbor of heaven. He's the only one. And so when we think about this, this denial of self, what does it mean? It doesn't mean to deny things. To take up your cross doesn't mean to take up a cause. To follow Christ, and this one gets difficult, not that the other ones weren't, but to follow Christ is, is to not baptize our personal preferences as Christ's unless those preferences are drawn directly from his word. That one hurts because I really like my ideas. But every idea I have, every idea that I ever read about, where do I need to take it to? I have to take it to the word. And if I don't find it clearly there, I have no right to baptize it and say that this is Christ's preference as well. And that's a massive temptation, temptation much of the time. What it means to deny oneself, to take up the cross, 
your cross and to follow Christ. It means to give yourself wholly to Christ and share in his shame and death. Paul described it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that you would know what is good and true and beautiful. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says about himself, whatever gain I had, power, position, prestige, whatever, whatever gain I had, which he included in this being born a son of Abraham, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I would follow him where he leads and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I've just, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that your confession? Is that your walk? Is that mine? Is that ours? Oh, God, let it be. To take up a cross doesn't mean to carry burdens or have problems. Think about it for a second. Everyone who has ever lived in a fallen world, they're all of them, whether they're saved by Christ or not, what are they going to have? They're all going to have. Everyone who's ever lived, whether redeemed or not, has had burdens and problems to deal with. That's life in a fallen world. To take up the cross means to identify with Christ in his rejection and his shame and his suffering and his death. That which Paul said was an offense to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. That's what it is to take up that cross. But then he says there's a return and a reward. We already said that everything we have has come from where? From Him. And this is the Father that's yours in Christ. I gave everything to you. Everything you've used came from me. And when it's all said and done, I'm going to give you a reward. Does He have to? No. Does He need to? Only because He has promised He will. But here's where we here's where we get. I mean, you you want to know how much we want? Oh, that day that we will see him as he is and be as he is. Because I see reward and I think I'm gonna earn the reward. No, you're not. 
pastor. When a reward is promised to good works in Scripture, their merit is not contrasted with the justification which is freely bestowed on us through faith. And it's not pointed as the cause of our pointed out as the cause of our salvation. But it's only held out to excite believers to aim at doing what is right by assuring them that their labor will not be lost. He will not waste a thing. We're justified freely. We have to remember that. In Romans 3, 23 and 24, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how we're justified. Tied up, given, secure. Yet God rewards our works. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. He says, according to the grace of God given to me. Notice, he is justified. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. So by the grace of God, those that have been justified in Christ who are saved are now doing what? Working with what he's given, what he's provided. It says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's your foundation. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is the final day, the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And notice this because this passage, it's so unfortunate and wrong that it's brought so much consternation to people because they say, what he's talking about is losing salvation. No, he's not. You are justified in Christ. Paul says, pay attention to what you build with. If you build with those materials, with that gold and with that silver and with the precious stones, but he also says you could be building with wood, hay, or straw. What's going to happen when the fire comes? Wood, hay, and straw will be consumed. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. You are in Christ if you have confessed him and are following him. Have any of us, as we followed Christ, done some dumb things, built with some stuff that's easily burned up? What does God tell us here? You haven't been lost. Should we repent? Sure. Absolutely. You have not been lost. And he's going to reward. And part of that reward is the life spent with him in eternity. Any of those rewards we receive, we know that we don't deserve, but he rejoices to give them. Doesn't that motivate you? Doesn't that give you a desire to want to work? Not because I'm earning anything, but because he's given this to me. He holds me secure. And as I work, I work for his glory. And when I screw it up, because I know I'll screw it up, he says, go try again. And No, he says, repent and you'll know your forgiveness and, and keep pursuing me. Keep following me. Keep going where I lead. And then he gives this promise. 
Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Oh my goodness, if you want to see some arguments, get started. When is this? When isn't this? Jesus spoke wrongly here. Jesus spoke rightly here. It's 70 AD. It's still up in the future. It's already been... It'll give anybody a headache. We know that it can't mean to, to, to just, you know, that, that it can't mean beyond. He's, he's very clear here that there are some standing here who will not taste death. And he's speaking to those 12. This could include everything from the transfiguration, which it seems like, since that seems like in the text that's going to happen in the next couple days, maybe that's not the primary one. But what are they going to see? The unveiled glory of the Son of Man. Some, when we look at this, we could look at the fullness of what's going to take place in Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And when we talk about the Son coming in, his, in the glory of his Father, the ascension and all of that that leads up to it, what is this? We have to remember that though it's humiliation on the cross, it's also exaltation. We have to remember that he is the king and Every king has an ascension to the throne and that his kingdom is coming. And then we might include Pentecost in this where there's this massive outpouring of the Spirit and we see the church taking shape. We see the reality that he says, I will be with you and you will be with me. There's a oneness there that one day we'll know the fullness and the wonder of, but it's very much present now. It could include all of that. And if I've just opened up a whole bunch of questions for you, I'm not going to answer them. But when we see Christ among people, do we see him coming in his kingdom? Absolutely. When someone is born again, they're born into his kingdom. Who's the one who's brought them into that kingdom? You were the tool in his hands, but who brought them? He did. As the church continues to expand, we see the king coming in his kingdom. There's a fullness that's yet to come. And it, it, would, it would satisfy that. Not, not, maybe not completely. There's a, there's a greater fullness to come. But can we confess that any time that we see the church of Christ expanding, the Son of Man is coming in his kingdom? Because there's a real presence there. And thank God for it. So as we come into our wrapping up this morning, when we seek to win converts, I don't even really like that language much. <laughs> when we seek to call people to Christ, we often do everything we can to persuade them of all the benefits they will receive. And, and we should tell them what the benefits are. They need to know if they'll give their life to Jesus. But Jesus didn't just talk about the benefits. He talked about the cost of being one of his followers. Elsewhere, he says, count the cost. There's no cheap grace in the evangelism of Jesus. Because you don't get part of these. You get all or you get none. Jesus knew how prone we are to overvalue what we can see and undervalue that which we cannot at the current moment. The cost in this time, and observed with world-shaped eyes, I promise you it will appear too large to bear. And it is if you're trying to do it on your own. But in comparison with what to come, when we are given seeing eyes, when we are in Christ, whatever that might be, that's too large to bear. In Christ, it is but a light momentary affliction, which will give way to a weight of glory 
beyond comparison. That's his path. That is the path of the one who denies themselves and takes up their cross and follows Christ. And to do that is not an optional thing for the Christian. None of these things are easy. How many of you are like, oh yeah, denying myself, real easy. Then you go home and you see that, yeah, I probably shouldn't eat all of it right now. None of these things are easy, but they're good. What I fear, not just for you, but for me, is that we would hear that we need to do more, that we need to try harder. But we can't do these things by our own power. What we need to hear and be reminded of is that in Christ, we can do exactly these things. We can do that because he's done them perfectly on our behalf. So when we fall short, which we will, we can look to the one who ran that course perfectly. We can repent. We can know his forgiveness and his restoration because we weren't cut off. Remember, he didn't cut Peter off even in the midst of what just took place. And we can continue by his power to lose our life for his sake. We lose our life for his sake when we do these three things for the joy that he's given us. It's not that we're saved by what we do, but rather our faith in him is revealed by these things. I think John, 1 John 3.18, I think we, we get a deeper understanding of this verse in this context where he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So our word or talk is the confession of Christ as the, the Christ, as the Son of the living God. And the deed is what? Taking up our cross, is denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Him. What a wonderful illustration of not loving just in word or talk, but in deed and truth as well. This is how sanctification progresses in the life of a believer. In denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ, you find life and you will gain your soul. You will be humbling yourself before the one who has called you out and equipped you for the life he has called you to. He said this, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. Why? They shall inherit the earth. That thing that Satan deceitfully promised, Christ says is yours. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But as we close, let these words from Proverbs and Revelation be our encouragement to come after Christ. For we recognize that to live in the shadow of the cross, we will walk through this life with trials. He told us that. But let us again be reminded that this life lived in the shadow of the cross is a life of hope, of heavenly provision, and a promise fulfilled, being fulfilled, and awaiting its overflowing fulfillment. The words coming from Solomon in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble.
Now listen to the words of our Savior as inspired and written, inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by the Apostle John in Revelation 11, 11 and 12. The church has endured much persecution. The witnesses have died. And the world has not allowed them to be buried. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Look to this one most noble. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him in his path where it leads. Because those words are going to be spoken to you in him.